Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, she made her very first film in high school. Welcome the extraordinary, award-winning filmmaker, Liz Garbus, to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Hey, everyone. My guest today is Liz Garbus. Liz is one of America's most celebrated documentary filmmakers. She has been nominated for two Academy Awards, two Emmy Awards, two Peabody Awards, and a Grammy nom for her body of work, which includes The Farm Angola, USA, What Happened, Miss Simone, Bobby Fischer, Against the World, Nothing Left Unsaid, The Fourth Estate, All in the Fight for Democracy, Love Marilyn, Becoming Cousteau, Harry and Meghan, among many, many others. Her scripted feature debut, Lost Girls, premiered at Sundance in January 2020, and she directed the season four finale of The Handmaid's Tale. Liz and her husband, Dan Kogan, co-founded Story Syndicate, a premium film and TV production company that provides a home for talented filmmakers, producers, journalists, thinkers, and artists to create innovative ambitious and elevated visual content. Welcome Liz Garbus to the podcast. Hello, friend. Hello. So nice to see you. Oh my God. It's so nice to see you. (laughs) Well, thank you a lot. And thank you for having me. I read really just some of the titles, the, the, the like wingspan of the topics that you have covered in your filmmaking for decades now. Um, it is so varied and incredible. And I read a quote, um, and and this might not be the most perfect, uh, it may not be verbatim what you said, but it was something like, it goes back to the Supreme Court trying to define pornography and that you know it when you see it, but you can't define it. Not that we make pornography, but you get my point. <laughs> it has to be propulsive character-driven storytelling. So that was you describing sort of what catches your eye and, and goes from, oh, that's cool too. I'm going to devote many, many years of my life, right? And right, so from right. Marilyn Monroe to Jacques Cousteau to, you know, uh, environment to First Amendment issues, right? Like it's so all-encompassing. I know that your dad, um, Martin Garbus, who's a First Amendment attorney, uh, among right, other yeah. things, yeah. featured, you know, prominently in in one of your works. So can we start there a little bit? Obviously, you were in um, a household that was filled with ideas and passion and activism. Can you talk a little bit about where you grew up, who else other than Martin Garbus was in the house, and where <laughs> this storytelling spark was born in you 
Thank you. Um, yeah, so I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and my um, my father, as you said, is Martin Garbus, and my mother is Ruth Garbus, and she is um, a therapist and a writer. Um, so sort of between the two of them, for my father's kind of, um, he's a lawyer, but his work was always political, or is always political, and, you know, she, with her therapy and social work background, has that, like, sort of listening piece, you know, <laughs> and I think, like, in some ways, that, that fuses in my DNA, and what do you get when you put those two things together? Maybe you get a documentary filmmaker. I don't know. I guess there are other ways it could come out. As it turns out, that's what you get. <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, it, you know, came out a little differently for my sister, but, you know, you can, you can see the, um, sort of the DNA in there. And yes, and I have an older sister who's a writer and a teacher, um, also living in New York City. So, um, so yeah, and I definitely, I grew up, you know, one of my father's clients was Kathy Boudin um, in the Weather Under, you know, one of the Weather Underground um, uh, members who um, infamously did the Brinks robbery in, in Nyack where a security guard was killed. And, um, you know, that was one of his cases. He, you know, early on, he worked with Lenny Bruce. Um, he worked with um, Salman Rushdie uh, uh, representing the publisher of the Satanic Verses. So yes, there was always interesting dialogue about um, ethical issues, moral lines, free speech, um, and, um, you know, from on that side and from my mother's side, of course, was a sort of, a, you know, a more um, social work therapy oriented point of view. Um, but growing up in New York City, in addition to growing up with parents like that who talked about all that kind of stuff, is also a very rich experience. And, um, and you know, I feel really grateful to be, you know, a lifer here in New York. <laughs> and so when did this... Um shift from talking about things that were really important to you and your family and the people around you um, turn into this idea of I'm going to shine a light on these things that I'm passionate about mm -hmm. so that these messages, these voices are heard more globally. And mm -hmm. did you and Rory meet in college? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so talk so about you and Rory and sort of the beginning of Moxie and, and all of that. Sure. But to fully answer your question, I've got to go before college to high school. And in high school, my senior year of high school, um, you know, we were seniors, you know, and everyone's already gotten into their school, you know, whatever, it's all done. And we were all sort of, I don't know if we're cursing on your podcast, but we're all fucking off and fucking around and being bad, you know, kid. And so I decided my last week of high school, I was going to I was going to document it. And this was at a time, I was going to document my last week of high school. Got it. So oh, this I love was at that. a time, this was at a time where of course there were no iPhones and, but even like VHS camcorders were not like, not, they were, just, it was just, it was not a usual thing for some. It was stop. newer. Right. Right. So I kept getting thrown out of classes, <laughs> which I was kind of doing anyway, because I was like, it was the last week of school and, you know, who, you know, trying to be a nice kid, but also um, was certainly pushing, pushing boundaries. Right. And, but, but after a little while, people kind of got used to it and kind of started speaking to the camera and were, were humoring me. Um, but those scenes of getting thrown out of physics, physics class were of course the, it's a sort of main draw. And I did a little in-camera edit um, and we, there was some graduation party with parents and students and I showed it, I attached it, I plugged in some, you know, found some, 
strange antiquated looking connecting cords and plugged it in and showed the film. And one of my friends, Fathers was a, is a documentary filmmaker who um, worked with PBS. And he said, Lizzie, you've made a documentary. And I thought, oh, I have. <laughs> and, Eureka. Yeah. yeah, Eureka. And so I took that little Eureka moment with me because I hadn't thought about it. I had really just thought about it as messing around. Yeah. And then actually like, you know, pushing boundaries and then getting to do something fun. Um, and then um, but in college, that sort of stuck with me. So I continued to take film classes. Um, and after college, I thought, um, unsurprisingly, given my father about going to law school. Mm-hmm. But then I did, um, I started doing some voter registration work and going out into the world. And I had gone to Brown University and um, and I, I, I sort of decided after doing that work, that um, I didn't want to go back to school and I wanted to just start working in, in the real world. Um, and um, I was able to get a job interning for another filmmaker, a man named Jonathan Stack. And over time, working with Jonathan Stack, that became my first film, feature film, which was called The Farm Angola USA, which went to Sundance and won an award. And therefore at that point, I was sort of able to say like, actually beyond the high school, Lizzie, you've made a documentary. I could say, you know, hey, I'm a documentary filmmaker. Yeah, at Sundance. Uh, And I could actually get, yeah, Sundance. And I could actually, you know, raise money and and do those things. Um, So then Rory came into play. We had a mutual friend from college and we, we didn't really know each other well at college. Um, but, um, through his mutual friend, we would see each other and we were both looking for a place to hang our hats. Like we'd been working for other people and kind of, and we were like, well, let's share some office space. And so that's how we started. And then, um, we were like, well, let's share an assistant or a production, an office manager was what it was at that time. And, and as time went on, we were like, well, let's do this project together. And so very organically, um, we started working together, which is funny because it's a little bit of a. Um, preview of what happens with me and Dan later stories sorry to indicate it wasn't so much as a deliberate choice you and me let it was all of a sudden it was this sort of organically happening thing and that made so much sense Um, and Rory and I you know continued working together like that for many years until she decided to relocate with her family to the west coast right when you look at you know how you make a documentary now Um, Obviously, the technology has changed since you graduated and were working for Jonathan and made your first film. But but tell me what you do that is the same from when you forgetting what cameras are available and how quickly things can, you know, get from your phone to to, you know, the edit. What is what are the things that you learned early on about how to in earnest make a documentary that still or how you work today? That's such a good question. Um, the first thing that came to mind, which may not be the, the best answer, but if something better comes of it, I'll, I'll answer then. Fair enough. Is um, So I hadn't had an experience, I had an experience um, in college um, and Rory did as well. This is actually before Rory. So I had an experience in college um, where I, I lost a friend to um, a drug overdose and a very good friend. And um, this was as I was starting out and working. 
And um, I was working, you know, as I said, first for Jonathan, just more as an assistant before we started actually making a film together. And I said, you know, I want to do something about addiction. And because um, I was just in the throes of this. And I thought, you know, this is how I can deal with some of these feelings and I can, you know, and I remember him sort of saying to me, you know, it's not, you know, I don't want to hear from you like, I, you, you want to do something about addiction. I want to hear from you like, this is, here's a story of a person or here's a story of people or here's a story of a program or here's a story of three different people or three different, you know, that you're, and you're going to follow that story. And I mean, it, it may sound very obvious, but um, the difference between, you know, writing an academic paper or an article, of course, long form journalism is also character driven, is finding that character who you don't want to look away from and who can in their own embody the contradictory um, feeling, you know, the contradictory uh, currents in your story. Um, and it's, and then that small story tells you the larger one. And, right. I, and I never sort of look back, I mean, so it's a sort of the difference between, you know, making an essay oriented film where you're saying, okay, addiction and here's a narrator and blah, 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 to, here's this incredible character and I'm going to just follow them and we're going to see what happens. And perhaps it sounds obvious, but it was a revelatory way of, of, of looking at it. And I never did make that film because it actually wasn't, it was more of, um, because I didn't have a film. I just had a, like a sadness in my own life that I had to deal with. I, you know, and so, you know, and it was like, could I have gone back and made a film about him and, you know, helped him? No, right. no it, it didn't. It didn't happen. That wasn't so, right. Yeah. Which, which so doesn't it, mean it, it can't happen in the future. That's best. Right. I mean, it sounds like you're describing specificity, right? It, like the it, small story yeah. within the, the within small a, storytelling. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. I think that, you know, then when we went and made the farm, it was, I mean, it was about Angola. It was about Louisiana State Penitentiary. It wasn't about the prison industrial complex in the United States, but it was right? And, um, and through the story of one person on death row there, and through the story of somebody going before the parole board, but through all these stories we're telling, we're talking about these larger issues. And, um, and, uh, you know, and, and certainly in pitching, if you're going to pitch something, you need to be able to tell those stories, you know, what are the stories we're going to see and feel. Does it surprise you or, or not surprise you that you can have such close proximity and and as i described earlier your the, the topics that you cover are so wide and varied so this isn't always true but if we use angle if we use that specific documentary as an example and there are others it's really painful subject matter like it's incredibly painful subject matter it's harrowing the frustration level of a system that's so broken that you are observing and finding very personal stories and connections to but ultimately don't have the power to change right yeah. the the whole infrastructure how you know i talk to all sorts of people who do all sorts of things on this podcast and the proximity to pain in your job sometimes chosen because of the topic um, how have you learned to absorb, be an artist in the, in the, in community with that story, whatever that story is like, what do you do with that? And how, how do you, do you choose times where I'm like, oh, I can't do that again right now. I'm going to do 100%, yeah. you know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. I'm going to do well, something a little more think, fun. 
Yeah. I mean, I actually think in my early career, you'll see I did a lot more verite films. Yeah. Or, you know, for your like, verite, like following stories that had unknown <laughs> and destined right. points, following real life, more fly on the wall. In real time. In real time, fly on the wall filmmaking versus more structured interview oriented filmmaking like the Nina Simone film I made or Harry and Meghan or um, uh, Bobby Fischer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, and, or even I'll be gone in the dark, which is a series I made. Um, and, um, part of it had to do with a little bit of, I think once I had kids or like a little bit of self-protection because uh -huh. those Verite films, um, as you're going through people with you're sort of alongside with, with people on a life journey that maybe one of their greatest challenges they'll ever face in life. And as a filmmaker, you're along with them. And to do that sort of year after year after year um, can be incredibly gratifying, but also incredibly draining. And the lines get very confused as well. I mean, I was making this film also early in my career called Girlhood, where it was after I'd made the farm and I had spent all these time with these lifers and hearing every single person I spoke to say, well, I started off in the foster care system. And I was like, Guys, look, foster care, you got a, you got an opportunity to, to have less full prisons if we can just do this yeah. other thing right. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course, it's not that simple, but I went and I made a film in Maryland um, with some young girls who were in and out of the foster care and juvenile justice system. And, um, and one of them was, you know, was very uh, borderline in terms of just like staying clean, st staying out of, Lock, you know, staying free, and um, my worry about her, my confusion about how much I could help as a filmmaker versus not help, all of those kinds of questions were, you know, were just so present in my mind and exhausting and important to be thinking about. Um, so, you know, they're after, you know, I think, I don't know what the exact sequence is, but after that, I, soon after I made, um, you know, Bobby Fisher, which was a, such a different and such a more contained kind of story. I, I knew where it would end up. Obviously, there are surprises, so many surprises along the way, but it is a different, um, a different relationship with your, with your, with your subject. I think a lot about um, the Janet Malcolm essay, The Journalist and the Murderer. I don't know if you're familiar with it, um, but she wrote, um, a, a, there were a series of articles in the New Yorker in 1989 that became a book called The Journalist and the Murderer. And it's about, and I don't consider myself a journalist actually, but it's about the relationship of journalist, or in my case, it would be storyteller with their subject and how, um, and the kind of moral weight. Well, it's about many things, but the thing that I'm going to specify now is about the moral weight of a whole, and the power of holding someone else's story in your hands, being able to right. edit it, be part of their legacy and the extraordinary responsibility um, and danger of that also um, is something that I think about a lot. So um, moving into scripted, there's been a freedom um, there as well as, um, you know, working with subject matters um, there is still a lot of pain, um, but I have a bit um, more perspective on where they're going and how it will play out. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like if if I 
looked at sort of the history of documentary filmmakers and filmmaking, you are, you have a huge legacy that you have already created, right? Like you are absolutely one of the most well-known, appreciated, awarded, lauded, um, respected documentary filmmakers of your generation. So A, congratulations. <laughs> when you said lauded, I thought you were saying loud. And I was like, yeah, I'm kind of loud too. L-A-U, <laughs> L-A-U. Um, that's me, that's my diction. Um, so, so if you were to look back and kind of go, I feel like in the world of preparation plus luck, right? And the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours and all the things that we sort of read about and know about in terms of what takes someone who's really talented and puts them forward in a world of a lot of talented people. Um, what was your lucky, what was the lucky thing do you think that happened that allowed you to break through? Um well, I mean, I think when you talk about breakthrough, I think it. I have to look back at the farm, and I think that. Um, so, what happened? The way the farm came to be um, is really funny, and this is the happenstance thing that I think led to you know to that film, and thus me having a career, and then more, yeah, and right, and then more, which was so. I, um, I was working. I didn't give you my entire job history, but I was working for a director named Biban Kidron who is a British female director who had actually directed both scripted and docs. And she came to New York um, and she was gonna do it. I was her assistant on a, on a Hollywood movie called Tu Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. And then I was gonna continue to work with her on a um, documentary she was doing about love at first sight. I didn't end up finishing that job with her because of various scheduling things. But one of the things that happened quite early on was that we got wind of a story of love at first sight between a costume designer who had worked on Tu Wong Fu and an inmate at Louisiana State Penitentiary. And because they met when she um, was doing costume design on the movie Dead Man Walking. So, so, so she said, you know, if you want to understand anything about Louisiana State Penitentiary and how things work and how you might be able to get access to my part, my lover, you know, my, my, my boyfriend or whatever he was at that point, you need to speak to this inmate and his name is Wilbur Rideau. And he is an inmate journalist. And because of various reforms at the prison, he actually has like a phone, which he can use during certain hours because he's the journalist and he makes calls and he reports. So I ended up reaching out to Wilbur Rideau in the efforts to do the uh, research for this documentary. And Wilbur just started talking to me. And Wilbert told, sent me his magazine and I started reading different stories of life inside. And he was a fountain of stories. And at some point he said to me, and this was sort of the love at first sight thing had, had kind of moved on. He said to me, you know, there's this man bones and he's, he's dying. He's been here for 50 years for a murder he admits he, he committed and he's dying and he's gonna be dead in, in about four weeks. He, he doesn't have much long to, longer ago. And he's just asking, to go home so he can die it by, with his children by his side. And he has a hearing coming up for it. Um, and all of us hope that he can get to go home so he can die peacefully at home. And maybe this is a story you wanna tell. And through, and I said, yeah, let's figure that out. 
And from there, John and I was at that point working as an assistant for Jonathan. I said, Jonathan, can you help me? I want to go down there and shoot this story with Wilbur. And I got down there. Um, you know, it's funny. You think you, you're going to show up at 8 a.m. on a Tuesday to film. You know, you don't really start filming until Thursday at 4 p.m. I mean, there's so much, you know, there's so much, there was such a steep learning curve of what actually went into it. But, you know, we made it through and we ended up documenting Bones's last days, his um, desire to go home, the rejection by the um, pardon board to let him go home, his family's reaction to that, and ultimately his burial on prison grounds. Because he said, if I can't die near my family, I'm going to be buried here. They have to, they're going to keep me. And I'm not going to put that cost onto my family. And I um, mean, that was how the farm began. So um, I think it was luck in that I happened to be pursuing this other story um, and, and, got, and got to meet this guy, Wilbert, who decided to just share lots of stuff with me. And, um, and then that I had Jonathan you know, there who helped fund that trip and make that happen and trusted me, who I was basically a kid, I'd never made a film, to go down there and figure it out. So um, I'd say that's sort of a, the, you know, the moment where I became a director. Right, right. You know, I think about, I mean, I'm thinking about that film, then I'm thinking about, I guess I saw in sort of revisiting so much of your work, I'm such a documentary fan, so I had seen so many of your movies already, your docs already, but I just watched Love, Marilyn last night, oh. actually, again. Um, and I really was really interested in the ways in which you took a, a list of A-list actors. I mean, if that were a movie only and not a documentary <laughs> that you had, you know, from Paul Giamatti to Marissa Tomei to, to Jennifer Ely to Hope Davis. I mean, it is the who's who of, of um, with, with, Ben Foster. I mean, I can't even remember all of them right now, but I was thinking in watching that because, you know, we mentioned in your bio read that you were getting so much attention and people really bothering you because they wanted to talk to you about The Handmaid's Tale. Fair enough. Um, but that in that film, you were really directing actors, that it, it is very obvious to me, um, each of them are doing something very, there, there's a a format that you came up with and a structure with a background from the film behind them as they sort of do a direct address kind of monologue of Marilyn's. And yet each of them really had a very unique take on it. By the way, I, I, everyone was incredible, but I did think Ms. Ely deserved an Academy Award. There was something that she was doing and I kept watching going, why do I know this actress? And, and then of course I'm like, oh, that's who it is. I think that's one of the greatest film performances I've ever seen. I was so, I, I mean, she just blew us all away. I mean, I remember just all of us being like that. What is happening? <laughs> like what she, is happening? I know. So. Let's just um, talk about how thrilled I am about the ways in which you have taken your 10,000 hours and probably 1 million more and moved into a lane of scripted um, and starting with the hands made. If it's not going to be a thing you wrote, what a cool thing that you yeah, got well, to do that important episode. Thank you. But, you know, my first scripted, well, I, I was I, when I was in college taking film, that's when I, I was doing narrative but my first 
professional scripted uh, feature was called Lost Girls, which was at Sundance in 2020, um, and then premiered on, was supposed to open on March 13th, um, which in 2020 when the world shut down. But COVID premiered instead. COVID premiered, but it was on Netflix. So in fact, it was, um, you know, not terrible timing for that aspect of it because it was on as everybody was at home. And so people watched it, which was nice. But um, so that was my first um, professional scripted work. Um, and then of course, yes, went on to Handmaid's Tale and working with the actors on um, all those incredible actors on uh, Love Marilyn was, I mean, the idea was essentially that Marilyn and she wrote about this was she was she was the projection of what all these all everyone's fantasies and what they wanted her to be right and this kind of like kaleidoscope of people's dreams and she used to talk about how she wrote like I can't sleep at night because I everybody is trying to she it was this sounds narcissistic so I'm butchering the quote but just because everybody's dreaming about me or dreaming that they want me to be something and so I can't sleep at night it, their their dreams are keeping me up right and Incredible. so it had to do with all of these um various angles on on her and like I wanted to hear Viola Davis, who was a Juilliard trained, you know, actor, um, you know, Mar Marilyn herself didn't have that, you know, she ultimately found um, through uh, Lee Strasberg, but, you know, I wanted to see that interpretation versus, um, you know, Jennifer Ely's. I wanted to see what all these other actors and what they brought and what could that teach us about Marilyn because she was, um, you know, so multifaceted, so much of other people's projections and explore that. Um, but the, and then yes, I've continued through Handmaid's Tale and then I've been doing, I recently just, most recently worked on Yellow Jackets, which was a totally different kind of show and incredibly gratifying as well. Um, but working with actors now, there's a lot that it shares with making documentaries um, in terms of um, helping find an emotional truth um, in a story. Um, but there's, of course, so much that's that's different, too. Right. I, I want to um, touch on Harry and Meghan, because as we speak, this episode will live forever, but it's January 2023, and that Netflix doc series came out pretty recently, and you've done a lot, a lot of work that has gotten a lot of attention, but this is like a, <laughs> a doc that is coming out when there's this cultural zeitgeist moment around these yeah. two people yeah. and and the world of royals and what is its relevancy still in our culture on the planet i mean there's so many things going on yeah. some some people are just interested in in the celebrity aspect of it right the the real housewives version mm -hmm. where we get to see inside the world of the rich and famous that most of us don't have access to regardless of whether they're royals or not like we just there's a real passion for consuming right now people whose lifestyles feel so other yeah. um but this one has just been at the center of you know you're you you're creating something at this moment where there's a lot of interest in it and the queen passed away moments before the release like so much is happening but what was really interesting to me about this series at, with you as the director at its helm is, and I could be wrong because I feel like I've seen everything of yours, but maybe I've missed one or two, is that you were a part of the film as well. Like, obviously you ask questions to people in your docs, but we have not 
seen you sort of participate in that way or have the awareness that we're not pretending that we are not filming this. You weren't pretending that they didn't know you were filming, right? Right, right? There's a way in which you let us, you opened up the process to us. And I know you took over this film. There had been someone else in, in the, in the reading about it. Um, and I don't know if anything had been shot when you came on, or if you got like a page one, I'm here to start this thing, but the decision to include yourself, even, even your voice or the back of you or whatever, how did you decide as a structure or a storytelling device to do it that way? And was that fun for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that I'm in it very, very little. I mean, you hear right. my few times. But you started off. We started off where I'm showing them this uh, video, yeah. And I think in one film of mine called Shouting Fire, which was um, called Stories from the Edge of Free Speech, in which I feature my father and his um, story along with other stories um, around that issue, um, I'm, I'm I'm probably most present in that film because my father's there and we talk a, a bit about his childhood. Um, but that's right. Uh, that's right. Forgive but, me. I mean, but, yes. but yeah, but, but you're right to say that I'm that, that, uh, and I think part of it was because um, this film was something they had initiated and I felt like that was important for the audience to understand that they were active participants in the telling of their story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so you can hear me talking to them and saying, you know, so why is it important that we tell it now? And, you know, I, and I think it was, it was important um, gateway information for the viewer to understand. It's just that kind that's like, I feel like I, as a storyteller, have a moral contract with my audience to be transparent. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it used to be that if you put recreations in documentaries, you wanted to say like, this is a recreation. So people knew now people get it. You know, I used in, in I'll be gone the dark. We had so many sort of stylized recreations, but if something was like on the bubble and not really clear, I would, I would want to tell my audience in some way or another, like, this is what's real. And this is what, what's maybe less real, (laughs) you know, whatever. Like, I, I feel like that the audience deserves to to know that when it's not obvious. So I thought it was important for the audience to know that this couple, you know, wanted to tell this story and there were X reasons why. Um, And we explore those reasons also. I think me just bringing in the laptop at the beginning was sort of by, um, uh, it was just sort of like a, it was a funny story because it was an interviewer in Canada asking Megan, you know, is she rather marry William or Harry? And she'd never heard of either of them. So they had, they had a laugh. So that was just like a good moment, but yeah, my voice continues after that. Um, and, uh, and I think it is to kind of, you know, sort of establish some of those, um, parameters for the audience. So they, they knew, um, how we made it. Over these years where you have been sort of welcomed into homes, environments, families, all sorts of um, life experiences. And and Harry and Meghan maybe being the most recent that we've absorbed of your work. How do you, like, have you come up, you're not a contortionist, you're not a circus girl. Like, how do you be in a space with people living their life with a crew, tiny or large, depending on the the scope of the project, like what have you learned? Um, if you could pass on to a you know a new filmmaker, obviously you can't be invisible. You're not a ghost, but like 
how have you learned, what are the tricks of the trade almost to allow people to behave completely honestly, even though you are in their home while they are behaving? Yeah, well, look, I think that there's always awareness of camera, right? I think there's always awareness of that third element. And I do think that part of, and this relates to the last question, is part of that is being open with your audience that, you know, that there, that, that, that this is a, this is a film. We, it's not a surveillance camera that just right. happens to be capturing right. what's happening. These moments, yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. That there is a, a kind of partnership or, you know, there is producing that's happening as you're seeing this. Now, most viewers are smart enough, you know, are have enough media savvy that they they know this about documentary now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, it's, and it's, again, it's a very similar thing. I think when you're working with actors, it's about, um, getting to a place where people feel like they're as comfortable it's it, or it's like friendship in some way which which I mean but it's like it's just getting people people it's allowing people to be heard and it's um giving people a sense of control as well you know if I'm in your kitchen shooting and you just don't I'm not going to fight with you when you cook when you you know when you tell me <laughs> over right like it's you know it, it's giving people a sense of ownership and control right, as well. right, right. Um, and um you know collaborating in that process um and just being really attuned to people and their needs and um you know, when to interject, when to disappear, when to hide behind the couch because they're going to cross the room and I don't want to be in the shot. Um, or when is that going to feel weird? You know, it's it's just like making all of those calls at, you know, when can I go whisper something to the camera person so they know what I'm thinking? You know, it's making all of those calls with all of your kind of sensors going to try to read the room and um, understand how to, to navigate it. Um, I get, I'm sorry if that's, uh, that's very abstract, hard, hard advice to pass on, but it, it kind of is like going back to that terrible Supreme Court, like, you know, when you see it, it's just, and I think in order to do that, and it's the same with scripted filmmaking, the most important thing is to listen to your instincts. Mm-hmm. And if you have your instincts that are saying, you know what, I really think you should, you know, give them this note and, um, or you should do this now. And then somebody else comes to you and gives you, a, it, whenever you don't listen to that instinct, um, and anytime I haven't listened to that instinct, cause I've had some producers say something else to me, or I thought, well, I wasn't planning on doing it that way. So I'm not going to do it that way. And that may be risky, or I may sound stupid or any of those reasons why you don't sometimes articulate something I've always regretted. It. And every day. So now I'm like, I'm just more willing to sound stupid or to risk sounding stupid. Um, this may be a dumb idea, but you know, as women, sometimes we say that, mm-hmm. but maybe if you need to say that, okay, you know, yeah. maybe if it makes you feel however you need to frame it, however you need to frame it, then maybe the next time you don't say it with that part because you don't feel nervous. Whatever it takes you to get there, um, to be able to listen to that inner voice and not squelch it. Um, no matter if that person with experience over there thinks X and that you had a different plan that told you to do Y it's to be present. Um, and, um, that's it. Yeah. I love that. That's the Ruth Garbus in you also, right? Like, <laughs> right. There's of, my, mom, my mom. Right. Yeah. All right. Before I let you go, uh, is there a little known fact about Liz Garbus oh. that you can share? Oh crap. Was I supposed to prepare for that? 
Oh, no. But, you know, I did share it that I was a PA on Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Um, I was a production assistant on that show. And um, no, sorry, I was the director's assistant on that show, which generally I tell people is um, sort of amusing because it's it's just it's like such an iconic um, iconic movie with Patrick Swayze, Wesley Snipes and John Leguizamo playing drag queens like before that was part of it, you know, before, of course, when drag queens was the word. Yes. Yeah. How about that? I, how about that? <laughs> By the way, how about that? Is, um, that a, is that a good enough little known fact? I think yeah. if we were, yes. And I want to have dinner and ask you one billion questions about that experience <laughs> of the making of that iconic, iconic film. Liz Garvis, thank you for being on the podcast today. What a true pleasure to get to have this time with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Little Known Fact, if you want to donate to the podcast, just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com forward slash donations. Thank you so much in advance for your generosity. Have a great day. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.